Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. Today, we bring you a conversation with Gustavo Ramos, an artist who is in his graduate studies of art. It's a bit unusual for the podcast. In the past, we usually have working artists and not those who are still in their studies. But we figured that it would be a good opportunity to hear from somebody who's making important decisions about what kind of artist they want to be, where they've been. And Gustavo Ramos, as you'll, prob- as you'll hear in our conversation, has had an interesting path that's led him to study at the Hein Academy of Art after studying at Southern Virginia University. Um, I think you'll be surprised, like I was, at the diversity of his background, um, artistically speaking and culturally speaking. And um, I think that you'll be as excited as I am to see what kind of work he produces in the future. And without further ado, I will uh, clue us into the conversation we had with Gustavo. Welcome, Gustavo Ramos. We're very happy to have you here for Mormon Visual Culture. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited. Well, we were... um, How do I start this? There's so many things I want to talk to you about. But maybe we should just start and dig right into the work that you've chosen, which is, he is not here. It's an oil painting by the artist um, Walter Rain. This is one of my favorite images by Walter Rain, who is one of my favorite artists. You could have hardly chosen something more that I'd like to talk about more. Good. <laughs> so, so thank you for choosing this from a very selfish perspective. But um, before we just, des- let's describe it. Do you want to describe this work for us? I've got it in front of me too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and you've oh seen man. it in person. I have seen it in person. It looks very, I mean, any Walter Rain work, I think that you see in person looks a lot more striking than if you were seeing a reproduction of it. Which is, first of all, I have to say you've seen it in person because it's interesting how many times we have conversations in this culture about works of art that many people have never experienced the original with. So I just wanted to clarify that because having right. seen the original is a different experience and you have had that different experience. Right. Okay, so go ahead. Describe this uh, work for okay, us. Okay, yeah. So uh, it, it's called He Is Not Here uh, and, th- and it's depicting... I guess the the cloth or the fabric that Christ was wrapped, Christ's body was wrapped in, um, and it's it's the moment after he left it behind, after he was resurrected, and I, I just think um, visually it's very striking. It's it's a very it's very well lit, and at the same time it has some very strong contrast with with lights and shadows at the same time, which I think it's something really difficult to achieve. Um, and overall, I think what, what my experience seeing it in person for the first time was seeing all of the different treatments in the surface of that painting. There's just so much that, that's going on in there. There's lots of, I don't even know, I, I'm not very familiar with all the techniques that Walter Rain uses, but you can just tell that he cared about every single part of that of, of that piece in, in his own way, not necessarily working so hard on this part and on that part, but just m- being aware of everything and, and creating that beautiful texture that he has. It is a... Really, subject-wise, I think for me, it's one of the most brilliant, um, one of the most brilliant narrative paintings I've seen in a very long time um, of any religious work, uh, because it takes into account that the audience itself, it has a lot of respect for the audience, it knows that they are going to create 
very quickly a, a a narrative in their mind of what has happened before, what has happened after, what is happening outside of the room where the shroud, this death shroud that's empty is now uh, sitting. This is like the this is this is a uh, um, the the shroud of Turin, right? Right. <laughs> not the shroud of Turin is <laughs> not endorsing the shroud of Turin as an actual relic. Uh, it's been debunked many times, but the idea that <laughs> that here you have. Um, you're telling the story of a risen Christ without showing Christ, without showing the principal actors in it, by just showing what are the most boring implements left behind from one of the most miraculous moments described in the scriptures. That's a really fascinating choice. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's also, it reminds me of in the... Um, well, you know, before I have to say what it reminds me of, why did you choose it? Of all the pieces you could have chosen, um, I'm not saying, I think it's a, a fantastic choice. Don't, that's not what right, I'm doing. Right, right. Why, why choose this piece? That's a hard question. Well, it has, has a lot to do with what you described with the narrative that's going on. And it, it's such a simple piece. It just looks like a still life, you know, and for some people it might be just completely meaningless. Um, but if you look at it with the right eyes and with the right understanding, it, it's just so easy for you to be involved in that narrative. I think it's, it's so successful in the way that it involves the viewer. It doesn't just give it all away. And, and, and uh, anyone who's familiar with Walter Rain will know that he is a master at painting the figure and doing all of those multi-figure compositions and storytelling. He's, he's a master at it. And then you have this piece, you know, and for this scene in particular, he... he his depiction of it is just it stands out from all of his other works and i think that's one of the things that that made it stand out to me personally mm. is that it gives you so much room to think and to right. interpret it yourself and to just have your own personal experience with it it's not just it's not he's not just giving the whole narrative to you he's right. making he's making you work on it and it's amazing i think it's like it's like a great band that's known for its vocals Deciding to put a long instrumental yeah. work, Radiohead doing just doing just <laughs> yeah. a just an exactly. instrumental with Johnny Greenwood on guitar, just that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I know it's <laughs> the Radiohead may not be for everybody. I'm saying a little bit more about myself there than I am about <laughs> actually about Walter Rain, but it does strike me um, in the 19th century and and even before, going back to the 17th century, as curricula were developed for various academies of fine art in Western Europe they would have classes that would be for things that are pretty obvious and still maintained up until the end of the 19th century. And even today in some courses, you'd have, you'd have basic geometry and perspective. You would mm -hmm. have composition where you would copy what others um, had done to figure out how did Albrecht Durer lay out the scene right. so that your eye is drawn across it. You'd have classes on tone, lights and darks. You'd have classes on... Um, on uh, the human figure, of course, which was the ultimate prize to, to or, or ultimate achievement was yep. to master the human figure. But one class that, that was part of that scheme for a long time, whether you were in France, Spain, Italy, England, or Germany, was drapery. Huh. You would have a drapery course. And they would just often, they would often have a model folded entirely in some kind of linen some kind of wool and they would try different materials because they they believed that that uh, mastery of the folds of something 
would allow you to draw your draw attention towards something. Mm-hmm. It became a compositional device in right. so many pieces. And when when I look at this, I think there's a little bit of a kind of old understanding here that Walter Rain is is uh, is bringing to this work that it might as well be a figure that yeah. that that piece of uh, of fabric for how he's using it. There's also that saying that I've, I've probably said on the podcast before that I don't remember who it's originally attributed to. I've just heard it repeated many times that um, um, all great work is abstract on some level. Uh-huh. It's that idea that you have to draw the eye around with shapes, with color, with lights and darks. This is a masterclass in drawing the eye yeah. around. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very abstract in that sense. It's it's uh it's the slanting. It's first of all, it's choosing the stone and where it ends and leaving at the very top. He could have done a view above uh-huh. the the linen. I keep saying linen. It may not be linen. It may yeah. actually be, you know, some other material. But that idea that that you're it, it fills the entire piece, and you're not really looking at where he's laying. You're just looking at the fabric that's fallen over if somebody just got out of bed, mm-hmm. dropped it on the ground carelessly and kept going. Yeah, yeah. I can't help but wonder if that's really how he set it up or if it was really well planned because it doesn't, it doesn't feel stiff at all, in my opinion. It just feels very natural, and, that, and that, that's what makes you want to keep looking at it. Is that, that's how it makes you feel. There's this group of artists that lived in the, the, uh, the, they were, they were the Dada artists, and they were very interested in this idea of randomness and how it showed uh-huh. up and documenting it, and they would drop pieces of paper or sometimes just splatter paint on walls. And we found out later that many of them were actually carefully placing the papers <laughs> rather than dropping them, which to me really isn't that disappointing because these kinds of things I don't know if you can do by accident. But it does make me wonder how did Walter Rain come to this composition? Very clearly you start at the top with with the... Uh, with a series of diagonals that bring you down across the painting. Mm-hmm. He had to, but, but it looks casually done. Yeah. It's, but, but it, it does with very sharp lines, draw your eye across. Okay. So now you were saying something that that's intriguing from a painterly perspective. You said you don't, you're not entirely sure how he has accomplished what he has with the surface and the laying down of the paint itself. So tell me what you do see in it that you can explain, that you're that you know about his technique or can infer from looking at his technique. Sure, because um, you're trying to reverse engineer this a little bit, right, right? Absolutely, yeah. I'm trying to figure. Look, one of the things that I like about Walter Rain the most, and one of the things that I'm aspiring to to achieve, is to have a very unique look in my own work. Something that you're you're walking down a gallery and you look at a painting and you don't have to look at the tag to see who the artist was. I think that I think any any really successful artist in history is very recognizable and i think walter rain is has that quality in his work you mean that the, the, no matter what you see by him whether he's painting right. a person an abstracted scene you know it's him yeah exactly what do you think that is that makes him so such gives him such a fingerprint such a good question well one of the things is i think it takes a lot of maturity to get to that point um i think it's hard to to really stand out when you're first learning, uh, but once you develop your technique and, and you mature as an artist, that's when it really shows, that's when your your own artistic voice starts to show in your work. And him being a mature artist is very successful at that. Uh, in terms of technique. I've heard, by the way, before uh-huh. you talk about it, in terms of technique, 
I've heard, by the way, this comment that's it's often used by people who are in the, the business of authenticating art, like auction houses, oh, yeah. that 80% of an artist's output resembles itself and 20% is experimental. Huh. Who knows if those actual numbers hold? Yeah. It's something that I heard at so Sotheby's and at Christie's a lot. But I think is that's kind of what you're talking yeah, about, right? Yeah. Is that that experimental period led to that period now where it resembles itself. And I guess, I guess, you know, how do you, I, whenever I see Walter rain, I don't even really need to see the signature most of the time because <laughs> maybe it's just, I'm only seeing the 80%. It looks just like, exactly, just yeah. like it. Technically you're saying, what is he doing? Yeah. Um, okay. One of the things that really stand out to me is there's a lot of, I don't even know what you would call it. Like lots of scrape marks. It looked like he's using sandpaper or, some sort of thing to scrape the paint down, and you see that not everywhere in the painting, obviously, but you see it maybe in the background, or you see it to create some sort of texture, and that's one of the things that make it very recognizable to me. Is his his masterful use of this technique that is not very often used to to show in a in a finished piece, you know. But he's just he's using it, and he's making it look so interesting and beautiful. Um, along with that, interesting, you know, lots of layers of paint and i'm not sure how many layers he goes through and I, I i'm not very familiar with how the process works yet but i can tell that he has areas where he works very wet into wet and he has other areas where you can tell that there's dried paint and then there's another layer on top of that and hopefully i'm not describing his process wrong or anything but that's that's really what it looks like when you get close and you look at the surface of his paintings i think when you're even talking with artists who are very very experienced it's it's hard to reverse engineer anything, yeah. right? It's almost like getting a recipe in front of you. And I had a mole the other day that said it had <laughs> 60 spices in it. How can you break down oh, man. all 60 spices? And this yeah. might as well, for all intents and purposes, be something that he has done so many different kinds of techniques. I wouldn't imagine. It's kind of an unfair... It's not a question that I think we'll be able to get right. to and answer entirely and take the mystery out, but... Yeah. But I think it's 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 fair to say um, that Walter Rain he studied um, he studied at Cal Arts in Los Angeles, and then he um, moved to New York briefly. And the program that he studied at, this is as far as I know, and I've met him in person. I've been to his studio in Harlem. Uh -huh. um, the studio was for illustration, and a lot of his early career was illustration. Yeah. Uh, I, that um, for those who were not initiated into arts education um, in the 19, probably from the 1920s until the 1970s, if you wanted to learn techniques of old masters, if you wanted to learn basics of composition and figurative studies, the real repository of those things was in illustration yep. programs. And and so he talks very humbly about he, about being a um, about that early education. But I think, you know, it's it's the equivalent really of the generation that he was studying with. And I also think it's interesting that he came from a, an artistic background that is different than almost every artistic background of a dominant LDS artist working today. Mm -hmm. So. The, the the LDS artists who are around today, almost all of them went to BYU or those who are of his generation. Yeah. Right. He's a contemporary almost with, I think, Trevor Southey, Gary Ernest Smith, Dennis Smith. And, and, and those artists were all together in a group 
and and uh, knew one another. And he's working off on his own. Yeah. First in California, goes to New York, then goes to Oregon, and now he's back in New York. And and something, if I get a chance to sit down and talk with him, that I'd be very interested in finding out is, it's it's probably got a double-edged sword to it. This idea that you're working in isolation, so your work doesn't necessarily resemble anybody else's, and that may be an advantage, right? Oh, yeah. But on the other hand, there's got to be a lot of loneliness, and and it, it results in this person who's doing work that's not like anybody else's right. that's in the church today, and who's of his maturity and his stature. He is undoubtedly, in my mind, one of the most original and greatest voices oh, we have. Yeah. And, and I don't think, I, I don't know at what point he started, um, I think when I talked to him, uh, it seemed like religious art had been for a very long time his, um, his focus, but he's also getting internationally recognized uh-huh. right now. He just won a major award in the Art Renewal Center um, Salon, which is a contest out of New York, yeah. and had his work on view in Barcelona. He has a gallery in, um, in New York, Rees Galleries, that's representing him. I just, I just hope he becomes world famous. Oh, me too. Yeah. I think he has everything in his favor for that to happen. So, so let's talk about your path to world fame. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, um, we, uh, um, I think you're maybe the first artist that we've talked with who's in the midst of, of your studies still. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to know about your background, where you came from, the path that you've taken, and the one that you hope to take. So I think that kind of tra- that that kind of origin and trajectory is something that a lot of people are doing right now. And I wanted to get into your mind with uh, all the decisions that that have been behind you and that lay ahead of you. I'm sure there are a lot of them, and find out why you made the decisions you did. But let, let's start with where you're from. Where where are you from? Okay, so I was born and raised in Brazil, in southern Brazil, the state's called Paraná. Okay. Um, I grew up there until I was 15 years old, and then I moved to Arizona in the United States with uh, my mom and my sister. So, You remember Brazil pretty well, I imagine, oh, if you, you were 15. Yep. Um, big part of who you are. Oh, yeah. Family still there? Yep. Do you go there? I went back once uh, in 2012. So I moved here in 2009, went back in 2012. Haven't been back since. Um, For the most part, you've been doing a lot of student work. It's maybe not the best time to be a world traveler. (laughs) Right. Eventually, we'll get there. Were you interested in art in Brazil? And if you were, what kind of art was available to you as a a child? Right. Yeah. So I was always interested in art. Um, Kind of a cliche thing to say, but I always just had a... That was always my favorite thing to do. I always had a notebook that I was drawing on. Obviously, like any kid, I would draw my favorite cartoon characters. Um... And then as now I, you have to name them though. You have to name the oh cartoon. Dragon Ball Z all the way, <laughs> uh, Power Rangers. Yeah, <laughs> that's how my son has started. That's what he's doing. There you go. Yep. Pokemon is his character. Oh yeah, Pokemon. Yeah, I used but to we come all start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. Well, so I mean, it wasn't anything that I was really like standing out or anything. Every kid likes to draw, but as I got older, I kept going with it. Um, but in Brazil, however, it's there isn't really a whole lot to do with, with fine art, you know, like you, there isn't like, I mean, you can go and you can study art, but there, there isn't a whole lot of artists that are making a living and being successful just as fine artists, studio artists. Um, so as you get older and people start asking you what you're going to do, 
even at 15 years old, people are already like, you, you already start thinking about what your future is going to be and what you like and what you don't like. Uh, so being in Brazil, not having a whole lot of, um, an idea of what you can do as an artist. There was no particular model that you had in front no, of you that said, absolutely not. This is the person I want to be this Brazilian exactly. artist. There, no, there was absolutely no one. Um, and so I ended up just saying, yeah, I want to be an architect because that's, that involves drawing and I really like drawing and that's really, I, I mean, I didn't really love architecture, but that was just kind of like the, the thing whenever an adult asks me, so what do you want to do when you grow up? I just say, oh, instead of saying I want to be an artist, so for them to be all confused, I would just say, I want to be an architect because I really like drawing hmm. and that's an actual profession, you know, it's a, it's a real thing. You know? So so what happened to you when you went to Arizona and why did you go to Arizona? Okay. Yeah. So my mom, uh, she was divorced when I was little and then she got remarried to uh, an American citizen. He's also uh, from Brazil, but he had been living here for uh, over 20 years. And okay. we ended up moving here to live with him. And that was just the most thrilling moment of my life. Really <laughs> exciting? Oh, it was a gosh. positive thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. that can be, for some people, getting getting a, a stepdad and moving uh-huh. to another country can be very traumatic. But oh, for you, it was, I was, a, it was exciting. I was living the dream. Like I was so excited. Not Not the same experience that my mom and my sister had. They were a little bit... Um, more, it was more difficult for them to adjust to the culture and they were thinking about going back way more than I was. I wasn't even thinking about going back ever. Hmm. I was just loving being in the United States. So many more opportunities. It really is a land of opportunity. Talking were, from. were you already speaking English um, when you came here? No, no, no? neither... No, I wasn't. Neither were my. But your your step your stepfather he was Brazilian, and yeah. so you're at home. You're just speaking Portuguese. Well, so that's what that's how he helped me learn how to speak English. So I could I, I could speak Portuguese with him obviously because it was the only thing I knew how to do. He would always reply in English to me, and so that helped me learn English. But really, the thing that helped me the most was they sent me to high school the first week that I got here. So literally, like I flew in. And I think the next, like, two days after that, I went to high school. And it was just regular high school. It wasn't anything where, I mean, I had a, a Did they give you even an English as a second language kind of class? No, no, no. So I, I had a counselor that spoke Spanish, and I could kind of communicate with her. Right. I mean, more or less. And so what she did is she just wrote on a piece of paper, um, this is a new student from Brazil. He doesn't know any English. And then she wrote down, like, how to find all of my classes that I was supposed to go to. I would, I would just walk into the classroom give the teacher that piece of paper for them to look at and then just sit down. And that was it for the first couple of months. I can't, a couple of months. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you seem to me and, and I've known you for a little while. You seem to be very outgoing. Were you as outgoing at, as that 15 year old <laughs> or, or did it, or did it cause you to be somewhat isolated and that lead you towards, you know, I don't want to infer too much, but right. did that lead you towards, I'm going to draw even more because no one here can talk to me. Honestly, no. I <laughs> This was this is really funny. I, f- I feel bad for all of the friends that I had because I had to deal with my bad English for a, for a long time. But uh, no, I was really serious about learning English. I felt like that was the first thing I had to do before trying to do other things in the United States. And so huh. I talked, so I, I made goals with myself and I said, I whenever I'm around people, I'm never just going to be quiet. That's what I said. So I, I said that to myself. Whenever, like, if I'm with friends or even people that I don't know, I'm always going to be trying to talk to them in English. And it, I, I just always felt bad for them because I would always be saying things that made no sense. And I would always be asking questions that wasn't a yes or no answer. And they would always, they would always be like, yeah, 
Uh-huh. <laughs> and I could tell they had no idea what I was saying, but that, that didn't stop me from keep trying. And, and I think that helped me a lot. So Arizona is, is uh, well, I was going to say Arizona isn't uh, very well known for art, but it does it does have its Southwest art. Mm-hmm. And it has some, some wonderful um, uh, landscape artists that have come from there who work out of there. Was art part of your your life in Arizona? Um. It's a good question. Not not as much. Um, I mean, I, I was so here. Here's what the big shift was when I moved from Brazil to Arizona. In Brazil, obviously, there's still art classes that you take in school. Um, and this is a general art classes that everyone's right, taking. Yeah, like learn okay. the color wheel, do some still lives. I don't know, just regular things. And then you come to Arizona, and all of a sudden, I had this teacher that was telling me that it's possible to be an artist and make a living as an artist. He came up to me, like he, he saw that I was really into art and that I had some experience with drawing and I wanted to keep going with it. And he just told me, promise me you're never going to get an office job and just stay there for the rest of your life because you can't waste this talent. This is a high school teacher? Yeah. And I just like, in that moment, I was like, wait, I can actually do something with this? Hmm. It was the first you know? person to really articulate that this could be a practical yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah, it just went from there. So you go to Southern Virginia University. And for those who don't know what Southern Virginia University is, can you can you describe what the school is and sure. why and tell us why you went there? Yeah. Okay. Um, let me backtrack a little bit then. So I, I, I was actually thinking of, I had three different schools that I had applied to, uh, Southern Virginia being one of them on my senior year of high school. Um, one of the other ones was meant to be like the top one art school in the world and that was a suggestion by my art teacher mm-hmm. uh, that i had to apply to that school so you're going after school specifically because of their art programs right yeah you're not right. interested in a general education if i'm going to go to college i'll figure out what i'm going to do when i get there exactly it's, i'm going there for art initially that's what it was two of them were, were art schools that were just art schools you know and then and then southern virginia universities what were they it was the new hampshire institute of art and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Okay. So um, I did a little round trip with my parents where I actually visited all of them. I got scholarships for so them. So they were so very encouraging throughout this process. My parents were, yeah. yeah That's I great. I was really, really lucky to have parents that still are very encouraging in my career and all that. Uh, so I went to visit them. I had scholarships for them, so I was really considering going to one of them, uh, but I didn't want to decide until I actually had been there. Um, my experience visiting them, each of them was a very different experience uh, where it's hard it's hard to describe what it was like but uh, the bottom line is I went to uh, to SVU Southern Virginia University um, on a completely regular day it wasn't like an open house the other two schools were open houses where they were prepared to to greet the new students and and figure out like do presentations and things like that I go to SVU which is a really small school uh, I think there's about 900 students there right now so right yeah so it's really small. not a big campus no at no. all but it's a beautiful beautiful campus, campus. Yeah. it's an old building right it is uh-huh. or series of buildings i should say yeah mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i get there and <laughs> it's really funny i i'm talking with the person at the lobby and i guess i'm just waiting for someone to come greet me and, and do a tour or something like that and i'm telling and the person's asking so what do you want to study and i said oh i'm uh, i'm here to study art and uh, but i'm not sure if i'm going to actually come here or not and then right when I say that, one of the art professors just walked by and then the person that's at the lab is like, oh, hey, that's that would be one of your art professors. And then I get introduced to her 
and this is out of the blue, you know, like she seems like she was busy going somewhere. Barbara Crawford is her name. And Barbara Crawford, for those who don't know, she's a very successful artist on her own. She's based out of Virginia and she had she'd been an assistant to Cy Twombly for right. a time. Yeah, so no, I mean that's this is you know that. So this is a this 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 is not an a, an amateur operation. No. That she's no. running. Oh, absolutely there. not. Yeah, she she was the assistant to Cy Twombly to paint the ceiling that he has at the Louvre. Yeah, 2009. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I'd, read, so. I'd read about her and I've seen it in person too. Yeah, yeah. So that really sparks an interest there. So yeah, I, I get introduced to her and then she says, let's sit down here in this room. I have my portfolio with me and everything, my art portfolio. She, she looks at it. She gives me feedback. And what kind of feedback did she give you and what did you have in your portfolio? I just had, I had lots of portrait drawings that I did from photographs. Um, friends from high school, things like that. Not, okay, so, so, so here's, here's a question I have for okay. you about this is that we live at a time when art school can mean a lot of things, right? Right. It can mean everything from something that's very abstract to something that isn't um, made specifically for performance or for exhibition of some kind to show up with portraits as part of your portfolio. You are making a statement about what kind of artist you want to be. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that if you go to a school like the Rhode Island school of design or, you know, some universities which which would look um they would want a broader portfolio yeah potentially mm -hmm. of work did you know that at the time and that you wanted and were you deliberately making that statement of i want to study traditional portraiture yeah i was i mean i don't I didn't why really and know why had you landed on that and maybe oh, traditional isn't the right word right figurative let's just say figurative, figurative. is an umbrella term i mean for me why did you land like, on figurative i guess for me it was realistic was the word you know i wanted to paint things that people can recognize um, okay that was the main thing for me. And Maybe I, the broadest word I've heard for that is representational. There you go. Art, there you right? Go. Yeah. Because all of these terms are so yeah. loaded, right? <laughs> yeah. Naturalism, uh -huh. figurative. It's yeah. So so thing you wanted things that were that that, that represented actual things that look like things. Yeah. So so the challenge of reproducing on some yeah. level yeah. what you're seeing and and yeah okay uh -huh. which which requires a kind of traditional education right uh -huh. and she's she's got. A, a very broad portfolio of, oh, yeah. of work where she does go from something that's representational to things that are very abstract. Yeah. How did she react to your idea? Was she, did she, was it, okay, we need to broaden oh, your, that's such a great question. your so, mind. I'm going to talk about this. Um, going to take, it's going to take more than just a sentence to answer that's fine. that. But that's fine. That's why we're here. Yeah. So, okay. So going back to the, the little talk that I was having with her, she was looking at my portfolio uh, she didn't really give me a whole lot of feedback at that time. She just told me which one she thought was was my best work, which was just one of the portraits there. And um, and then she asked me what my plans were. And I said, well, I haven't decided if I'm going to come here. I have this school and this school, and I'm not sure which one I'm going to I'm gonna go to yet. So that's why I'm visiting. And then she stops, and she looks at me, and she says, okay, Gustavo, if you want to get a really good art education, really good art training, go to the School of the Arts Institute of Chicago, because I know they have a great program there. But if you want to get a great well-rounded education and stand out as an educated artist then you come to Southern Virginia University that's what she said and what did and she mean by that I, well at the time what I didn't know you yeah. know I, I was confused and I just went home and I started thinking about that and I started like it, it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made to figure out where I want to go to school because I know how influential that can be so what I did is I just started thinking about the artists that I admire, old masters, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, the ones that I was aware of at the time. And thinking about them, I realized they weren't just going after 
learning how to hold a brush and mix colors and learn how to draw. They were really going after educating themselves, not necessarily like studying with someone that's a philosopher or anything, but learning how the world works, you know, and learning how to understand things and society and things like that. So in a way, did you feel like getting a very specific art education would have impeded your ability to be a good artist? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so, you, so, so you're saying that you wanted to have yeah, a broader like education? Yeah, I, I didn't know what I wanted to paint about. Like I, and I mean, I partially still don't. I'm still developing that. But I felt like going to a place where I could get an education and understand the world better and learn how to think better would help me create meaningful art. Because I don't want to just create beautiful art. That's, that's a huge part of it. But I want to create art that's actually going to help people think and provoke thought just like Leonardo da Vinci did you know and that's why it's still alive for all these years it's not because the Mona Lisa looks so beautiful right you know and so I had read that uh they, they, there was a an exhibition that you were part of in 2016 uh where you and I believe it was three other artists were right. on were on view at Southern Utah University with your not Southern Utah <laughs> Southern Virginia you. University <laughs> I'm sorry Southern Virginia University um with a, um, uh, 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 with what was probably your first exhibition. Yeah. Is that right? Uh-huh. And it, it made a, a, a statement that you were drawing up to four hours a day um, At least. For, for your At education, least four um, which, yeah. you know, is the kind of thing that, that uh, if you were a piano major, you'd be practicing four hours a day. Uh-huh. What does your daily schedule look like at Southern Virginia University as an art student? What kind of education are you getting? Okay, so... Oh man, I'm gonna have to back back step a little bit more to explain what that is because That's fine. I, because my situation was very unique uh, while I was there and and I can explain why that that is and why that was the perfect place for for an art student like me to go to. So uh, I guess going back to um, your question with Barbara Crawford having her very broad portfolio, uh, how she reacted to what what I wanted. Very to high quality to. and broad. Oh yes. yeah. It, oh exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So okay, it, it was. It was frustrating for me at first. So let me see where, where can I start this story. So I guess um, she she knew that I like drawing portraits and she knew that I that I was serious about it. So she ended up introducing me to a form a former student of hers that I went to Southern Virginia University, Gregory Mortensen, the painter. Um, I'm familiar with his work. Yeah, yes. amazing portrait painter. Um, she knew I liked portraiture and she knew that he was doing very successful. Uh, he was being very successful painting portraits and she thought that sh- she would help me make the connection there. And I just remember when I saw his his paintings, I it was like a new window opening for me that I had never looked out of before. It was just such a high quality work that I wasn't seeing anywhere else, you know. And and from him, I was able to be introduced to so many other artists that that were creating that high level. And Gregory Mortensen work. is playing on an international level. He's very oh, yeah. highly respected. Is he working in New York? Yeah, he's in New York. That's right. And he's he's doing. He's been doing a series of works out of Africa that are that are are, are children and yeah. in in rural Africa, right? Uh-huh. And he's been getting a lot of attention. I didn't know he went to Southern Virginia yeah. Uh, University. Yeah. So that's how I got introduced wow. to this whole movement of the he's classical by realism. A, it, it's so ca- and classical realism. Say say more about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you got introduced to this. The, yeah. What is the movement of classical realism? Okay, if you had so to describe it. At the time when I first saw it. I didn't know that there were anyone that were painting realistically without using photographs. I had no idea that even existed. I, I knew of lots of artists that were photorealistic. Um, but then I got introduced to Greg Mortensen holding those values of creating beautiful things and 
uh, so many other artists that were doing that and working from life and creating things that looked like what the old masters were doing. And I just fell in love with that. I just felt like that was such an awesome thing to aspire to create. And it was just so much higher than anything that I had seen in the art world so far from my perspective. Were, were you, did you feel like you were going against the grain by doing that? Well, because cause you're using yeah. words like working from life and uh -huh. beautiful. Yeah. Which to a lot of art students, that's taught to be <laughs> an old fashioned, useless way of working. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that it is or is not because everybody is entitled to their perspective on it. But if you're making a choice towards that, it, by some standards, it's going against the grain. Absolutely. And, and here's the interesting part of it. So I wanted to learn how to do what he was doing. And, and I, I, I looked up what kind of training he received after, after Southern Virginia and what kind, of, what, what kind of curriculum was the atelier curriculum, you know, and what kind of things you have to do to be able to, to become the painter that you want to become. And I learned that it had a lot to do with learning how to draw before, you're learning, before you learn how to paint. And at the time that I discovered that, I was taking a watercolor class with, with Professor Crawford, Barbara Crawford. And I just remember showing, like, I, I, I decided that I didn't want to paint anymore until I, I knew how to draw. And just because, like, I was looking at my watercolors, and I mean, like, there were beautiful colors and things like that, but they, they weren't very structural. It, w it wasn't making me very happy. So I just remember one day, I just we had weekly um, critiques where we would bring our work and show it there. Uh, to the other students and everything. And I just remember one week, I didn't do it intentionally, but I, I, I just got so into wanting to learn how to draw that I just drew and I brought in just drawings instead of paintings, you know, which is like, I mean, everybody was like, what are you doing? Like, do you want to fail this class? And I just, I mean, I had, I had to show something. So I just hung all the drawings and some of them were master copies from Michelangelo that I was doing and things like that. And, and that's I, something you chose on your own to yeah, do? Yeah, I just wanted to learn how to draw. And I was trying to see how, how like where I was at and where, like, what I needed to do, like, what was the next step for me to, to keep getting better at drawing. And Professor Crawford was so supportive, and I was so shocked by it. But she, uh, asked, she asked to meet with me, and she sat down with me, and she said, look, I know I, I can see what you're trying to do, and I, I totally understand this, this method that you're trying to follow. So and instead of this watercolor that we're doing, why don't we do this? Why don't we start an independent study together? And what, what that means, what she explained that to mean is that it's, it's, uh, it's an actual course that you can sign up for, but you choose what you're going to do for that whole semester. So you have to be very specific on what you're going to do and what you're going to accomplish and create timelines and things like that. But you present it to her and she can approve it and that counts for credit. So, so it sounds like she, it was a very personalized education within a large academic institution right, or right. a large-ish yeah. Which is an unusual experience. Uh-huh. It, I guess, one of the questions I have for you is, let me, can I preface it with something? There's sure. a, there's a, there's a, a, a 20th century um, Spanish historian, oh, his name will come to me in a moment, who, it was, it was very popular um, right now to describe the history of Europe in the terms of nationalism, of national identity. And one of the things he wrote is that in the 19th and 18th centuries, as Spain, as England, as, as France were coming together with their own identities, um, they had to create national myths and they had to adopt certain people that were in and out of those myths and there were models 
and he called it the pantheon of 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 these nations. Huh. So pantheon is the is the is, is the um, the term for um, in uh, in Latin and in Rome. There's the pantheon of the house of all of the gods that belong to the the Romans. Huh. And and I think it's true that everybody and every culture has their own artistic pantheon, artists that are in and out, right? Yeah. And 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 this is I know a long preface to this question, but here you are in this program, you're working with somebody who is got her own pantheon that includes Cy Twombly, right? Yeah. You've got all of your these students who are just trying to graduate, man. Just trying, just trying to graduate. Hey, I was one of them sometimes. And yeah. we all we all are. It's practical. And you are starting to develop a pantheon that includes Gregory Mortensen, um, who is not widely known, um, I guess, within LDS culture, I would imagine, uh-huh. but who is widely re- and highly regarded within the larger classical tradition and, and revival that's going on right now. Who, who are you looking at? You're looking at Michelangelo. You're copying. Why are you looking at Michelangelo to copy drawings? Who else are you looking at when you're putting together an independent study program and you're at a school where you're starting to put it together? Are you just looking through art books? What's who is in your pantheon? Oh, Who's gosh. in your pantheon? I guess is the question. Okay. Um, give me give me your pantheon of artistic gods. Okay. Are you talking about right now or at the time? Both. Let's start with okay. who you who started because I mean maybe there's some people that you begin to add, but I think the artistic pantheon gets older, and only occasionally right. people are kicked out. Oh yeah, right. I still, but oh, I want I want to know who who how do you start who starts getting in it? Who's in your pantheon? Okay, so I guess the way to answer that question. So I um, my, for my first independent study that I was talking about that I was just choose what I was going to do for a whole semester. The first one was all master copies. I said I just wanted to copy the old masters and try to figure out what they were doing that were making their works beautiful. Old masters, know. meaning whom? Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci. The two first, like, they were my two first influences, I guess. Okay. Um, especially Michelangelo. Michelangelo's like number one. And Why is that? I just, that's such a hard question. I think for his mastery of depicting figures, um, and that's what I, from my um, master copies that I did from him in my freshman year, um, I mean, you don't see it when you just look at it, but when you're drawing, there's just so much movement. You can kind of tell where the weight is falling, uh, how the body's twisting. It's just, it's just so much, so so much understanding into is this it, one figure. And I'm talking about like the the Sistine, the Sistine Chapel, Chapel in particular. Like copies of because that's the thing about Michelangelo is he is not a calm human figure. He is not the still. Um, classical figures of Raphael right. or Andrea del Sarto. He is deliberately twisting and muscular and uh-huh. motion-oriented. And you used words like weight and movement, which I think distill almost perfectly what separates him yeah. out from his generation. Da Vinci wasn't as much about movement. No. <laughs> so you're being drawn yeah. to somebody like Michelangelo because, because of those characteristics, either consciously or subconsciously, that's happening. Right, exactly. Okay. Gregory Mortensen gets pulled in there, and part of that is because it's being added to by by your by by because he's also a graduate of the program. Yeah, but he's doing excellent work. Uh-huh. Okay, who else gets added? Um, oh man, from Gregory Mortensen, I just found out about so many other artists that were in that circle, like Jacob Collins. Uh, okay, I guess Jacob, Jacob Collins, Collins based out of New York, founder of the Grand Central Academy, or right. co-founder. 
Okay. Okay. And uh, you're looking at his figurative work, not just his landscapes, or both of them, or figurative work. Figurative yeah, work. Yeah, I'm just okay. copying some figure drawings from him. Oh man, who else did I do? I'm trying to think. I did a couple of Jacob Collins. Have you got the Bark Manual this time? Or are you looking at not uh, at that time? I did that eventually. Okay. Uh, I did that like on my second year there. Okay. Um, but for from that very beginning, I was just copying the works that I thought were so good, and I was just trying to figure out why they were okay. good. Okay. But eventually, I got to do some Bark drawings and. Okay. Um, yeah, but mostly I was just looking at old masters. Like I was looking at Rembrandt. I didn't do a whole lot of copies from Rembrandt. Um, Not known for his line as much no. as he is for his application. <laughs> exactly. Of paint, uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So um, I know there's a lot we're missing out on, but it's it's one of the things that's interesting to me about this, and and maybe it's something you can't answer is that um, when you when we were talking about this interview and the artwork you were picking, the first one you brought up was Carl Block, potentially. Right. And I had given you the requirement that I wanted it to be an artist that was well-known in LDS culture or, uh, or, uh, um, or was LDS in origin. That's part of the confines of this, this, uh, this, this podcast that we're right. doing. Maybe you would have chosen Michelangelo if I had said any artist, yeah. right? <laughs> but... But part of going to Southern Virginia University, part of coming to Utah, you've probably adopted into your pantheon artists like Walter Rain, like oh, yeah. Carl Block, that aren't in Jacob Collins or Daniel Graves or Michael Angels right. or Jeffrey Mims or Graydon Parrish or Jeremy Lipkin, uh-huh. all of these artists who are well-known within the classical revival that's been going on right now. Um. Does that represent, is that something that comes late or is it something that, I mean, I don't know, were you born in the church? Yeah, yeah, I you was. Were? Uh-huh. So were you familiar with those artworks as a kid? No, not, well, I mean. In Brazil, I, I mean. Guess, I guess I, I had seen them. I had never really like tried to know who painted them or anything like that. So not really, I guess, but. So yeah. Walter Rain, is he, is he somebody and um, Carl Block who show up later? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Uh-huh. You go from Southern Virginia University. You get um, the cow a, 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 a grant. Is it a grant or is it a, is it a scholarship from the Cowboy Univer- uh, Cowboy Museum? Uh, which, it's a grant, I think is what they call it. Which yeah. look for those who don't know, the Cowboy Museum is not a place where you learn to 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 <laughs> to, 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 to tie a cow. It is one of yeah. the most prestigious museums of figurative Western art. and figurative art anywhere in the country. Tell me about that competition. There were over 300 artists who compete for this, and you're chosen for the award. What was that competition like? Why go for it? Okay, so I I first applied for it um, in my junior year of college, just trying to figure out how to get some scholarships for my next year. And, And I applied for them, and I just send in the work that I have currently, my best work. They give me a $500 scholarship that year. Um, and then a year later, I know that I can reapply for it. So, so I reapply, I I reapply for them and then I'm chosen for an even bigger scholarship and they reply back to me and they say, we are really happy with how your work has developed this past year. And And you're sending them back, um, studies that you're doing or, or your your works that are the product of your education. Right. Yeah. So at that time I sent in lots of uh, portraits that were done from life. Like I think. I don't even remember how many works I sent, but 90% of them were all portraits um, of different people. Probably most of them were from my wife. My wife sits for portraits a lot. Um, 
when I want to draw her. And, and she's so, an artist herself. Right. Mm-hmm. Studied in the same program. Yep. Okay. She did. Okay. And so that that's what my application consisted of. And um, yeah, I think I think what really made the difference in, in me being selected for that scholarship was the progress that I showed, I guess. Like the fact that they saw my work a year ago and they're seeing my work now and it looks different. <laughs> like it looks very different. It, it puts you in contact with a lot of artists, I imagine, too, because that is a program and a, and, a, and, a, and a place where artists from around the country and around the world who are aspiring towards representational art are doing some of their best work right. for contests that are happening there. Tell me about where you are right now and why you're there. Okay. Well, so right now I'm studying under Jeff Hine, um, the Hine Academy of Art uh, school that he runs. It's it was a big decision choosing to go there uh, right after graduated from SVU, uh, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a quick decision. I actually so the first time that I saw uh, a work by him, I didn't even know who it was by. I just saw it in the temple. It was uh, Christ in America, I think is what it's called, the one with that he painted with Christ and the two little girls. Right. And is it in San Salvador? Is that where it is? I don't know. I didn't it... see the original. It's Honduras. It's in Honduras. I think it's it's oh, in that's Honduras. Great. I yes. get it. Eric, who's who's off off mic, was <laughs> just he's he saved my life here. So he is. There you go. It's in Honduras. That's what he did it for. And it's Very it's nice. a striking image. I remember seeing it in his studio as he was working. Oh, that's it. great. Yeah. So I, I saw that painting and where did you see it? Was uh, it a, was it a? It wasn't the original. I no, it wasn't the original. Sorry, it was a right. it was a reproduction in the temple. I don't remember where it was. But basically, I saw it, and it looked classical, and it looked contemporary at the same time. Like, I could tell it was, it was a new painting, not just because I had never seen it before, but because it looked like it was someone from today that painted it. Right. And at the same time, it looked like it was someone that cared about classical principles when they painted it. It didn't look like it was done from photograph. And I was trying so hard to, under, to, to read the, the, the signature, and I could never figure out what it said. Yeah, see if you can convince him <laughs> to work on that. So I just walked away, and I was like, I guess I'll never know who that artist I is. I want big block letters, <laughs> Jeff, if you're listening. <laughs> there are a few <laughs> artists that as, art historian, as an art historian, when you're looking at old paintings, um, and, you, and you spend hours figuring out how to decipher the letters yeah <laughs> you want to tell every artist to work on that so that's that's a lesson to everybody listening yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry i interrupted no you're good so eventually <laughs> i got introduced to him again i think uh I, w- I had a friend in college that was a photographer and he was photographing some of my work for the scholarships that i was applying to and he was like oh this looks like what my friend at the Han academy is doing and i said at the what and he said oh the Han academy in salt lake city uh, yeah, they do this kind of stuff. I was like, oh, maybe I'll look it up. So I look it up, and then, and then I find out Jeff Hine, and I look at his work and realize he's the one that painted it. I was like, oh, so he's the artist that painted this, this painting that I was looking at at the temple. Um, so I ended up call or I sent him an email, and I said, hey, what's the best way to contact you? Because I'm looking into uh, where I'm going to study after I finish here. And he sends me his phone number back. So I call him, and I'm all nervous because he's an artist that I really admire. And so, He's admired by a lot of people. Yeah, he's yeah. uh not even predominantly known as an LDS artist. He's predominantly known as a an internationally award-winning oh, yeah. portraitist. And um, it probably would surprise people to know that he that he has uh, an academy and that uh, he, he... And it's very competitive to get into his academy. Sorry, sorry, sorry yeah, you were yeah, saying. You yeah. were saying. No, yeah, so it's... You it call him, you're nervous. Yeah, talk to him on the phone. And I have this list of questions that I want to ask him about the program that he runs and things like that. 
And I guess that was one of the most important moments in my decision to go study with him is because he really looked like he really sounded like he was serious about helping me get to where I want to get in my career as an artist and actually make a career as an artist. Uh, he was just so like very, I don't know, what's the word? Like he he was very driven and like I could tell that he really wants his students to succeed. Even though I wasn't even his student, I was just this random guy calling him, and he was just already giving me suggestions on what I should do right now, and things that would help me have a successful career later on. And and from that, I, I like more than just a, a successful, really good painter that he is. I could tell that he's he would have been a really good man, mentor as well. Um, so you're, so you're, you're, uh, you've only been there a short time. How long has it been that you've actually been in the Academy? Uh, two weeks, two, two weeks. weeks or so. And I, we've got just a, a couple of minutes left, but I want to sure. hear, this is what I want to hear in these last few minutes that okay. we got. Number one is what are you doing? What, what are you hoping to gain from being at Jeff Hines Academy? Okay. And then what do you hope to do after? Okay. I know we could spend an entire <laughs> podcast. No, I'm glad that just you talking about those two things, but but it's it's uh, I think it's important to uh, to to hear this whole journey up to this too. So, so, sure, so go tell us. So what are you hoping to get out of being with Jeff Hine? Okay, and then what are you going to do after? That's a good question. So one of the main reasons why I I considered the Hine Academy over other ateliers that I was aware of, and thought of going there as well, um, was that I felt like Jeff Hine puts a really big emphasis in helping their students helping his students develop their own artistic voice and not because I feel, I feel like one of the things that I noticed with ateliers is there's a lot of artists that end up looking like the other artists. And I feel like su just succeeding the art world, like we were saying with Walter Rain, you have to be recognizable. You, you have, when people talk about you, other people have to be able to think of your work and not be confused with a different artist. I think that's what that setting your work apart from other artists is a huge thing in, in being recognized by people. And I think Jeff Hine does that extremely well in his portraiture. It's obviously a Jeff Hine when you look at it. And that gave me the impression, and it was, and it was the correct impression, that he wants his students to do that same thing. To he's not trying to make little Jeff Hines. No, he's not, he's not trying to have everyone in the studio make the exact same things. And, and I can see that already from my two weeks being there. Uh, his comments that he makes on the things that I do well even though they're different than the things that maybe his other students are doing. And his other students are doing things that, that he's also building on and not necessarily things that I'm doing in my own work. And so it's really, I, I think he's really good at recognizing things that, that set you apart and amplifying those things and, and making those things a big part of your work because that's really what, what you are as an artist. Mm -hmm. That's a very, it's a very rare skill for a teacher. It sounds like you had that experience at Southern Virginia right. University too. It's a... Uh, something that reminds me of, of a comment Jerome once made, the Jean-Léon Jerome, the 19th century yeah. a teacher at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris. He was, he was talking about Thomas Couture's students, and somebody said, look at Couture's students. He had Pouvi de Chavon, he had Manet, he had Fontaine Latour, he had uh. artists that did not that all looked like they had studied with different artists. Right. And they were making the criticism to Jerome that... Boy, he just can't he can't teach him anything. And Jerome said he's achieved something I wish I could have, which is he produced individuals. Oh, that's amazing. And I think uh, that's true in any discipline, right? That you want to be able to find a teacher who can do that. Yeah. So what's next? Well, so I'm hoping to. How long are you going to be there? I have no idea. Uh, I I I am very 
um, determined to not take forever in the program. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't want to set a time for it just because, I mean, at least right now, it's really hard to tell. Um, but I don't want to take too long to get to where I want to get and be able to launch my career. But I am going to take as long as it takes. I'm you're, not. You're tackling a little, tackling it like English. You, it's <laughs> it, it's going to take you just a couple of months, and you'll have the hind thing down. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, probably not. But um, but what I mean is, it's it's going to take as long as it takes. But I'm not going to take forever doing it. So I mean, if it takes two years, if it takes four years. What I, I don't want to launch my career prematurely. I don't. I don't want to get out there. Um, I mean, I'm constantly trying to get out there, but I don't. I don't want to really make any big steps without first knowing that the work I have to show is worthy of people's first impressions. You know. Do you care who your audience is right now? Or are you still trying to figure that out? Do you do you want to do religious works? Do you want to do portraiture? Do you want to do a mix of things? Do you just? I really. Sky's I, the limit. Yeah. Sky's the limit, I guess. Uh, I, I really like doing portraiture. That's uh, that's my whenever. I mean, that's if, if people ask what's your favorite thing to do, I would say portraiture. Uh, but I I want to get good at everything, you mm -hmm. know, because I feel like the more things I know, the less limited I'm gonna be. And I think that's something that Jeff excels at. Yeah. And so it's, it's something I really want to get out of of my education with him is trying is learning how to paint whatever I want to paint, so that when I say. I want to paint this guy jumping off of an airplane. I don't know. It's just a crazy random idea. I want to be able to know how to do it, uh, you know? Hmm. Well, I am excited to see what comes out of this in the end. I've already seen a number of your works. For those who want to see more of your works, you've got an Instagram feed. And what's your Instagram handle? It's Gustavo Ramos Art. Okay. So... I um is there anywhere else we should we should look for things or is that the principal place for right now, now just go to Instagram for now, yeah place. Um, I post pretty much everything I make there so well it's been a, a real honor to have you here truly I've I've seen you as you've uh, you you've come around where I work and doing master copies and um and I've also talked with Jeff Hine about you and it's just uh it's just a real um joy to see someone who's at this stage in your career and who's already experienced so much um i'd like to thank gustavo ramos thank you for coming in today thank you so much for having me here this was fun you're welcome it was fun it's never enough time is it no <laughs> um thank you for listening to this episode of mormon visual culture if you're interested in um subscribing you can go to itunes or you can go to our website zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab and hear other interviews with artists collectors and scholars about lds art and culture my name is Micah Christensen, and thank you for listening.